Turn with me to Hosea chapter 14. We'll wrap up our study this morning in this book. Um, when we began our study of Hosea, one of the first things that we did is we took some time and we identified the author, we identified the historical context, uh, and, and began to look at the applicability of the Word of God it was written thousands of years ago to our lives today, how the, the Lord may use uh, those things to instruct us, his people. And before we uh, study and make application this morning from this concluding chapter, I want to just go back and look at those general application, points of application that we've sort of used as a framework as we've studied through Hosea. Um now, obviously, these may not be the only ways that God would apply this to us, but in general, we see these parallels uh, with the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the church today. And so uh, let's let's begin there. Number one, as we look at uh, modern applicability, we understand that we face the same uh, temptation that Adam and Eve felt fell to. And ultimately, it's the same temptation that the kingdom of Israel fell to. And, and ultimately, when we get right down to it at its root cause, it's a dismissal or a rejection of God and his word. Remember that in Genesis, God created everything. It was all very good. It was, in fact, perfect and declared by God to be so. And there was the one command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden with the warning that in the day that you do, you will die. And ultimately, we understand the story. We've read the Bible, we've studied through it, and we see that Adam and Eve choose to reject what God has said and indulge in sin. And as a result, we have mankind plummeting into sin, the effects of sin throughout all of creation. But it's the same problem that faces Israel. That here is God's people, that he has specifically chosen to be an example and a witness to the world around them of who he is, of his faithfulness, of his calling, of his purpose to redeem mankind since the beginning of time. And over and over again, throughout their history, they've rejected God and his word. Now, this is applicable to the church. Because the church does the same thing effectively. The church over and over throughout its history has rejected God's word, has chosen other things that would be supreme, man's wisdom or understanding or whatever it may be, and try and meld the two, syncretize something with God's word and bring it from its position of authority to something less than God intended it to be. So there's modern applicability in that we have the same root problem. Now, second, I think I just keep hitting buttons. I mean, just bear with me. It's hard, okay? <laughs> second, like Israel, the church draws near with their mouth, which is the, the accusation that we find here in Hosea. Remember that the main metaphor that God has used is he introduced uh, Hosea and his relationship with Israel in the beginning of this book is the relationship of an adulterous woman. 
that would draw near with their mouth, but their heart is corrupted by idolatry. Their heart is far from him. Their heart is separated from him and not desirous to walk in relationship with him. Look at me in the first uh, chapter of the book of Hosea, first three verses. He says, the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, the, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the word said, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. And we have this description. And this is the first two, three chapters. This is what God uses to illustrate this relationship with Israel, where he is faithful, where he protects, where he provides, where he does everything necessary, where Israel rejects and pursues false gods and indulges in depra depraved sin as a result of their idolatry. Now, for, for all kinds of different reasons, but ultimately rooted in the same of the first reason that we would reject the word of God, that we would look at the wisdom and the understanding of man or anything else as opposed to that of God, the church falls into the same trap. Where we would elevate things and we would assume positions of authority or give things position of authority equal to or greater than that of God's word. That we would draw near and say, we are the people of God. We are his children. He is our God. We represent him, which is what we are told in 2 Corinthians 5. We're his ambassadors. We're his representatives. And we'd proclaim that to the world around us. Yet the church at large would misrepresent and present a perverse picture of who God is and what he has said. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to just read the first 14 verses. We're going to read through it quickly. Uh, it basically speaks for itself. But ultimately, the long and short is that the thing that is uh, has replaced the who in regard to our worship. And we read about it in Romans chapter 2 that they would worship other things, parts of creation that God himself has made instead of the creator. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would that you should not be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And these references to the nation of Israel and God's deliverance of them. There are the exodus and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat. And did all eat the, and the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples. To the intent, we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And we'll remember that that in the middle of this, it isn't it isn't simply the lust, but it is the it is the lack of trust. Because here's why they are overthrown. We remember that they get there to the promised land. They send in the 12 spies and they chose to listen to the 10 spies who could only walk by sight. And yeah, there's giants in the land and we have no hope of over, ever taking it. 
Yet there were the two, Joshua and Caleb, who trusted the Lord. And if God be for us, who can be against us, was their conclusion. We should go in right now and take this place over. It is a land flowing with milk and honey like God promised. Yet they lusted after, they desired ease and something other than what God had promised. They didn't trust what God had said. So he continues on. We have these as our examples, and we see that Israel is an example people. It is the way that God has illustrated his relationship with the church today. Not that we replace or, or, or supplant Israel in any way, but it is an example for us. And he says, neither be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, they, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples and samples that we are that are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. So here is some warning for us. Here is the nation of Israel. Here is God's people thinking we're doing pretty well. God has chosen us, and we need to take heed. We need to be watchful, lest we fall. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. So like Israel, the church may draw near, uh, and, and even individually, there may be scenes in our life where we are less than right in our relationship, for lack of better terms, with the Lord where we may be holding other things in a position that is inappropriate or that would supplant him some form of idolatry, which is as we began our study, we defined it in that way. Anything that would dispose God, that would move him from his place of sovereignty and authority in our lives. And that could be anything. It could be people. It could be good things, works of righteousness that, that ultimately with that motive are simply rags, filthy rags that are, unacceptable before the Lord. Whatever it may be, we have to take those things and put them in their proper context, and we have to re-elevate, as it were, the Lord to his position, that we would serve him and him alone. We would draw near, not only in what we say, but in the way that we conduct ourselves. And last, the, the third general application that we'd be introduced the book with is that we should expect God to deal with us, his people, the church, in the same blunt, very forward, very direct, yet merciful way that he dealt with Israel. Throughout all of Israel's history, whether we... The book of Judges is a great example because over and over we have this interaction where God would send the prophet. You guys are falling into sin. He deals with them directly and simply and very plainly. And he says, and when they repent, when they would turn their heart back, God would deliver them. That's what the word judge means. It means deliverer. It means savior. We have all these different examples, all those foreshadowings of Jesus Christ who would ultimately deliver us from the consequence of sin. 
permanently and finally. We would expect that God would deal with his people, you and I, the church today, the same as he dealt with his people Israel in the past. And we find that to be the case in Romans 15, if you'll turn there with me, Romans 15, 4. We already read a very similar principle in 1 Corinthians 10, but it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. In other words, what God has recorded about Israel and his interactions with them is written for our understanding. It's written as our example. It's written as something that would teach and instruct us how we ought to conduct ourselves in relationship to God, how we should properly view him, who he is even. Not only that, but in Hebrews chapter 12, and we've been to this chapter numerous times through our study in Hosea, we have this confirmation that when God deals with us, when he has to correct us, that it is simply a motivation of, motivated simply by his love. In other words, God isn't willing to leave us where we're at. He loves us too much to leave us there. And in fact, it makes the very clear statement that when God deals with us, he's dealing with us as with sons. And if we don't receive that correction, that chastisement, then we're in fact not his children. That God loves us too much to leave us there. That he's too zealous, uh, for lack of a better term. We tend to have zeal and somewhat of a negative connotation, though it is not negative. He's zealous for his own glory. And when you and I as the church, his ambassadors, would begin to misrepresent him through our wrong living, through our rejection of who he is, his sovereignty, his providence, his clearly stated word, then he's going to correct that. He wants the world to look at us as his witnesses, as, as the example that he uses today, and see a clear picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ in you and in me. So he's going to deal with this the same as he dealt with his people in the past to present this clear witness. So as we introduce the book, that's sort of the framework that we moved upon, that those main applications sort of come to bear throughout, and that sort of formed the main theme of our applications. All of those being general in regard to the church, but all of them also being very specific and that they may apply to any one of us at any point in our walk with the Lord to whatever greater or lesser degree. And as the Lord moves in, and in our hearts and as we have received from the word of God and been confronted with the mirror of what God has put before us, we find this interaction with the word of God that convicts. And as the spirit leads us into truth, we find, yes, this is something, Lord, that you are dealing with me about. And hopefully throughout our study in the book of Hosea, that's where we've been. We've encountered conviction. We've encountered those things where God has tapped us on the shoulder and said, listen, this is, this is something that we've got to get right. This is something that we need to correct. And I pray, and my prayer has been through our study here, is that when we encounter those things, as God taps on our shoulder, that our heart is soft and responsive to that. Because that's God's desire. As we've seen throughout the book, there is this call over and over to repentance. There is this promise of coming judgment, and that will come. The nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, is going into captivity in Assyria. 
That, that is a certainty. And in fact, as we look back throughout history, we know that it happened just as God promised it would with the, with the very specific details that are associated with it here in this book and in others, uh, whether it's the book of Amos or, or other prophets that were contemporary with Hosea. But we've seen this transition in the last several chapters. And as we've, we've made it clear that God is completely God, all of his attributes coming to bear throughout all of this, and that, yes, he can't condone the sinfulness of Israel just as he can't condone our sinfulness. We've been forgiven in Jesus Christ. If we have trusted in him, we've been born again, we are forgiven, that our position is sure and fast and unchanging. We are declared righteous by God himself. Justified is the theological term. That's all true. But God wants us to represent him well. And he wants a clear witness to the world around us. And so, therefore, he will correct us. We look at this and we, we understand in some respects that this is the sanctification, the molding into the image of Christ that we read about in Romans chapter 8. That God would make us more like Christ so that the world would see a more consistent and a clearer picture of the salvation purchased and provided for them solely and completely by Christ. How does all this relate? What, what, how, does this, how does this get us into Hebrew, excuse me, Hosea chapter 14? Let's look. Let's begin in verse 1. Hosea chapter 14, verse 1. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. We have in this one verse, we have three expressions as I can see it. Boy, this thing is really sensitive today. Listen, if you see it like flash past, if it's not making sense, just put your hand up. I'll, I'll fix it. You note takers, you got to help me out here, okay? Help me help you. But we have three things. We have an expression of justice, right? That the Israel return of the Lord, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. God can't condone the sin that they that they have in their lives. He has to, there's going to be a consequence for it. And we've talked about this at great length, that God is now mocked as we read in the book of Galatians chapter six, whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. Now this isn't in respect to our eternal standing with God. That is secure. We are forgiven in Christ. That is, we, we talked about that. It's our justification. However, there is a consequence for the way that we choose to live. And we've talked about that as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We live in this life and we build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ with things that endure for eternity or things that don't endure for eternity. And God in his faithfulness to us says, listen, I'm going to execute justice on the things that are that aren't going to last. They'll be proven. They'll be tested and tried. So there's an expression of justice. They have fallen by their iniquity. Your sinfulness is what has brought this about. There's also an expression of love. An expression of love. He says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. Now I want you to not miss that because even as simple as it is, and we talked about this last week, right? God is telling Israel, I am still your God, which is an interesting concept because as we look back at the covenants that God has instituted with his people throughout the Old Testament, there are conditions. And, and, I, and I say that, and we, we look at the, 
the giving of the Ten Commandments there in Exodus 19. Right? We, read, we read them in 20, but in Exodus 19, God says, listen, if you'll keep my commandments, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. He makes this commitment and there's some condition that you'll represent me. You'll be my people. People will look and know that I am your God. They'll see you'll be the mechanism that I communicate who I am to the world around you. But there were some conditions there. But interestingly enough, God in his faithfulness, God in his mercy, and God fully remaining just all at the same time, upheld his end of the bargain even when Israel did not. He remained faithful. He never left them. He never forsook them. They remained his people. And even prophetically speaks those things, even through the book of Hosea, that are yet to come. Faithfulness is that he is yet to show them as his people. They blew. They hadn't even received the written Ten Commandments, and they were committing all kinds of idolatry around this golden calf that they had Aaron made. Yeah, we'll do exactly everything that you want us to do, we read in Exodus 19. That's exactly what Israel said. I'm pretty sure that in the Hebrew it translates exactly that. Whatever you want, God, we'll do it. It's basically that direct. And before Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, there have already fallen to idolatry. What does God do? Well, he makes new commandments. The same 10 rewrites them because, you know, Moses throws them down and the whole scene that happens there. But God in his faithfulness yet provides, reinstitutes this covenant with this people that he already knows. Which has been the story since the beginning of time. God, who was all-knowing, didn't create Adam and Eve, and it was somehow a surprise to him that they were going to sin. Now, I can't fill in the why for anyone, because the mind of God is higher than mine, for sure, and higher than all mankind's. But I do know that God fully intended to provide himself as a sacrifice for our sinfulness before he made Adam and Eve. That he knew that what it was going to cost him to redeem mankind, even before he fashioned mankind. And God, being completely sufficient, not needing some outlet for his love, loved us enough that he would make Adam and Eve anyway. The same story has been played out in your life and my life if we put faith in Jesus Christ, right? We've blown it. We have fallen by our iniquity. There is none righteous, no, not one. Yet Jesus Christ would die for us. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8. He would commend his love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. So there's this expression of love, this come back to me. And I want you to realize that just as God would deal with the nation of Israel in that same grace, he's going to deal with us in that same grace. And we're going to focus on that this morning because I think it's a very appropriate place for us to conclude this book. And third, it's an expression of his faithfulness, which is really the same discussion, isn't it? His grace that is never failing, that is sufficient for every need that we may have. Never forsaking his children. That God didn't give up on Israel and he's not going to give up on you or me. We can expect him to deal with us the same. In verse 2 and 3 of Hosea 14, 
God gives instruction by the prophet to the people. And he says, take with you words and turn to the Lord, say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So we will render the calves of our lips. Interesting phrasing here. Verse three, Asher. Now, Asher, don't don't be confused. That's simply Assyria. If you want to do a little study, I'll tell you in your notes, put down Genesis chapter two, verse 14 and Genesis 10, verse 11. Okay. Asher was the second son of Shem. He built Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. We get to Assyria right here. Okay, there you go. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. You, ye are our gods, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. We see the prophet Hosea expressing this changing of heart with, uh, within the nation of Israel. Now, whether it's a, a confession similar to Daniel who confessed the sins of the nation, or there's actually some turning of hearts beginning, we don't know exactly. But we do know that there is a turning of hearts because God ultimately brings them back. Now, he tells them to take words and turn to the Lord. God isn't interested in their offerings. Right? Throughout, throughout the Old Testament, God has said, listen, Israel, this is how I want you to worship me. And, and we're going to uh, shed the blood of animals as these temporary coverings. We're going to have a priesthood that does all the things. Here is this pattern of all of these symbolic elements within the tabernacle and the temple that communicate the shedding of blood for the remission of sins which looks forward to the shedding of Jesus's blood, which is the final offering for all sin. And here he says, listen, he tells them what I want you to bring is not these offerings, is I want you to take words. And I think this becomes important for us. God is interested not in the offerings, not in the animals that we bring. He's interested in the position of our heart. Oh, Israel, return unto the Lord is not begin to go back and worship and offering the offer the sacrifices you're supposed to offer. It's a position of relationship with their creator. And Luke, turn there with me to Luke chapter six. Luke chapter six, Jesus himself gives us commentary on the heart of mankind. And I think that it gives us some understanding of where God is coming from and telling them to bring words. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Jesus says, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth that which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Now, the speaking that is being talked about here in the discussion isn't just what we say, it's how we conduct ourselves. That's really what it means. It's how we live in both word and in deed. So here's the nation of Israel, and they brought in all this idolatry. They, they've done all these things and syncretized and fallen into depraved sin. Here is the church that may be doing similar things or elevating positions. God says, don't bring offerings. He says, turn your heart toward me. Correct your heart so that you might now bring forth fruit that is out of the abundance of a heart that is correct, that is submitted to me, that is a worshipful heart, that is in obedience to my word, my will, and my purpose. God instructs Israel to repent. 
and he tells him specifically what to say in the first verse, excuse me, in verse 3, uh, take your words and turn to the Lord, say unto him, take away all iniquity. Right? He says, confess. Acknowledge the sin that we have. Begin to think about it, look at it the way that God looks at it. An acknowledgement of sin. In that acknowledgement of our sinfulness, it removes from us any self-righteousness. Right? Think about Israel. They have established righteousness and they're measuring their righteousness through the benefits that they perceive they receive, the benefits they perceive they have received from these false gods. We've seen that throughout, right? The prosperity that we're holding is the representation of the faithfulness and the blessing of these idols, which God addressed early on in the book. He says, you think that they're coming from them, but ultimately it's me that is providing them. And as a result of that, part of the correction that I'm going to give you is a loss of that provision. We read that in the second chapter of Hosea. He removes that acknowledgement of sin removes any self-righteousness. It acknowledges that in myself there is no good thing, as Paul would say. But that the righteousness that is required is that righteousness that is equal to God's that can be only received in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus was made sin, it says, so that we could be made his righteousness. That's atonement. That's what that means. That's a description of it. So there's this confession, this acknowledgement of where we stand, an acknowledgement of where my heart is, an acknowledgement of where I need to go. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, and this is good news, right? I, I realize this feels heavy. This acknowledgement of sin feels heavy, but this is what it is for the believer. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us from our sins, which is, right, we are standing in Christ forgiven, fully justified. But here we are with sin in our life. And God says, I will remove it from you and cleanse you from that sin. In other words, I'm going to correct your heart. I'm going to give you the information that you need, whether by the spirit or the word, so that you might think about it the way I think about it. And conduct yourself consistently with the profession of faith that we hold. In Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, Jesus is speaking a, a parable to his disciples. And in this parable, there are two people that go to the temple. We have a Pharisee and we have a publican. Now, a publican is basically a tax collector for the Roman government. They're not nice people. They're hated by the Jews because they're turncoats from their perspective. Not only that, but they generally are taking advantage, right? This is the tax that I take from you, and here's the little bit that I take from myself. And as we find this pub, this Pharisee, this self-righteous man stands and he says, Oh, Lord, and it says, thus he spake with himself. Right? He's not talking with the Lord. He's completely communing with himself, and he says, I thank you that I'm not like this publican. He is self-righteous. 
He's unwilling to acknowledge the sinfulness that he has. Yet, in verse 13 of Luke chapter 18, this publican, it says, standing far off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. He realizes where he stands. He sees himself in the light that God sees him in in regard to his sinfulness. And what does he beg for? He says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He confesses his sin and he begs God for mercy. Which is what we find all throughout the book of Psalms. Here is David, this man after God's own heart, who is willing to acknowledge and see himself the way God sees him. He's not perfect. But he says, Lord, I beg you for, for mercy. God tells the nation of Israel, he tells his people, he would tell the church, confess. Acknowledge our sinfulness. Acknowledge where our heart abides and allow me to remove those things from me. He also tells them to praise. If you look in verse 2, he says, So will we render the calves of our lips, the offering of our lips. The animal that we would sacrifice would be praise. I think there are three ways that we ultimately praise the Lord. Three ways. Turn with me to Psalm Chapter 69 for a moment. Psalm 69. And I think that ultimately the first two are easy and familiar to us. Psalm 69. I just want to read verses 30 and 31. But ultimately this Psalm of David is representative in many ways of what we're discussing in regard to praise. David writes, I will praise the, praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullocks that hath the horns and hooves. In other words, David understands, man after God's own heart, inspired by the Spirit of God to write what he's written here for our instruction, says, I will praise the Lord. I will acknowledge his faithfulness, what he has done. And I will do so with thanksgiving. And that offering of my lips is more valuable to the Lord. That position of my heart is more valuable to the Lord than the offerings that I would have brought to the temple, than to the ox or to the, to the bullock. Those, and those being sin offerings. Those being offerings that are prescribed by God to remove the sin of the people. So we praise the Lord. And when we praise it, ultimately, we, we tend to put that in the context of singing, which it can be, and we will do at the conclusion of our service like we normally do. That here it is, we praise, we give thanks to the Lord, we, we give adoration for what he has done and who he is. But don't stop there. The praise that David is giving us, and we're going to talk about this in the next couple of weeks, as we look at David in regard to his zeal for the Lord, and we're going to take a few weeks and examine that together but it's something that we do publicly when we're at work and we give praise to the lord and we we acknowledge his faithfulness we acknowledge his handiwork we acknowledge those things that he has provided us the grace that we've received the mercy that he has extended the faithfulness the justice all of the things who he is becomes part of our witness as we're going to see 
Not only that, but we give thanksgiving. We praise him with thanksgiving. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. If you'll turn there with me. Verses 13 through 16. This in the description of Jesus and his uh, being taken out to be crucified says, let us go, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. This is that public profession, that public thanksgiving of what Christ has done for us. For we, for here, have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. We have this con confession of thankfulness to who God is and what he has done on our behalf to those that we are, that we are around, it. whether it's in church or whether it's outside of the church, period. That is aware. That is the articulation of our lips. And that is consistent, as we say here, to communicate and forget not, to do good and to communicate, to, to pro share the gospel, for lack of better terms. With these sacrifices, here is God equating these sacrifices, the offering of our lips, what we say with those things that we would lay down, that we would bring before him. He calls them sacrifices. Now, you and I know that we may, uh, as a result of articulating and speaking biblical truth, talking about who God is and what he's done, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, but salvation is by him and him alone. That there may be some reprisal at the hands of those who would hear that. We understand that in this life, Jesus promised that we'll have trouble as we represent him. It becomes part of the offering. Not only is it part of the offering, but our willingness to stand firm and to say and to praise God, no matter where we are and no matter what context we're in, becomes part of the witness that we have as believers. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And as we turn there, just remember, here is the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, who have rejected him, who have begun to ascribe to these false idols all the success and the blessing that they're receiving. They begin to elevate these things and praise them and worship them. And now as people look, they don't see the people of God. They see the people of these idols. And the same can be true of us. The same can be true of us. But our witness needs to be consistent. We're praising God. We're giving thanks to him for all that he's done. Even the strength to get up tomorrow morning and go to work and do the things that he's called me to do, to do a good job in what I'm doing, is provided by God himself. It becomes part of our witness. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. You also are lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing, I want you to notice that the sacrifices that we may offer are only acceptable in Christ. The offerings that we may bring outside 
of that, apart from Christ, not being born again, don't bring about anything. And that's a careful thing for us to understand because it makes a difference between works, salvation, and salvation by grace through Jesus Christ alone. The offerings that we bring in Christ are acceptable, and only those. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. This is a reference, and this is a quote from the Old Testament speaking of Jesus Christ, being the foundation. That this is upon, this is what we build our life upon. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. Right? Those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, there is nothing but preciousness, there is nothing but value, there is nothing but but gain for lack of better terms it is something that is dear to us because we've experienced it we've been born again but unto them that are which are disobedient those who would reject the stone which the builders disallowed the same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient whereunto also they were appointed but Jesus Christ is offensive to the world around us. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, something that is set apart for the Lord. That is us. That's our description. That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, God has established us in the positions that we are in called us to be this peculiar people, set us apart to do so by his word and by his spirit so that we might be a witness to the world around us. And to the praise and the thanksgiving, the conduct and the, the adherence and the obedience to the word of God, being chief among those witnesses that we hold. We're to bring the offering of our lips so we confess we acknowledge our sinfulness. We let God deal with it. We let him move in our hearts and minds as a result of our confession and cleanse us from it. We bring the offering of our lips. We give praise and thanksgiving and witness to who God is and what he's done. Both in word and in deed. And we also trust. God tells the nation of Israel to trust in verse 3, he says, Asher shall not save us. Right? This is what we're bringing to the Lord. Asher, the Assyria is not going to save us. They're not going to be. And we'll remember that there's been these alliances made that historically, as we get back into the book of Kings and Second Chronicles, they're trying to scheme and, and make alliance with Assyria. If we can get on their good side, then they won't be able to be the instrument of God of correction upon us. And they're so fearful about it that not only that, but they go behind Assyria and they come over and make alliances with Egypt because if we can get a bigger army, maybe we can defend ourselves. Right? They're walking by sight. They don't trust the Lord. Asher will not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say anymore to the work of our hands, these idols, these false gods. We're not going to acknowledge them anymore. We're not going to give them the glory and the praise. We're not going to say to them, you are our gods, for in thee the fatherless find mercy. In you, God, in the living God, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in you, the fatherless, find mercy. God tells the nation of Israel, you need to confess, you need to praise, and you need to trust. And the same is true for us. 
Turn with me to Psalm verse 20, chapter 20. Psalm chapter 20. Verses 7 and 8. It says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. I look around and I see our country today and I see a lot of, and we've talked about this before. And this is only an illustration, in my opinion, of where the hearts of many believers lie today. And that our political affiliation has become equated with our spirituality, at least locally and I think in other places. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses and some trust in governments and some trust in politicians and other worldly leaders. Some trust in the job and the paycheck that they receive. Some trust in uh, the house that they have or the cars that they drive. I don't trust in any of my cars at this point. I'm a little once bitten, twice shy, right? But but we understand, right, that we might put trust in all these other kinds of things. And ultimately, that is idolatry. Yet here it is. Some trust in those things. But we, we will remember the Lord, the name of the Lord. We will trust in him. We will be like Joshua and Caleb, who when we come to the promised land, when we stand on the precipice of entering in, we understand that God is with us and no one can stand against us. That what God has called us to, what he has equipped us for, the grace that he has extended to us, is all so that we might serve him acceptably, as we read in Hebrews 12. Which is fully seated and, and, and couched in the context of God correcting our sinfulness that reception of grace so that we might serve him acceptably. In John chapter 14, turn there with me, if you will. John chapter 14, verse 18. As Jesus is preparing his disciples for his inevitable departure. I mean, at, at this point, he is not far from going to the cross He's not far from the mock trials that he's going to endure. He's not far from Gethsemane where he's going to pray, even for you and I who would come to faith in him later. And as he speaks with his disciples, this is what he tells us in John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now, there's two things at play here. Number one, there's a promise of the Holy Spirit, of the Comforter, which you and I as believers receive as the earnest of our salvation, the down payment, that here it is, I'm paying you ahead of time, as it were, for the, on the, upon the promises that I've already made. So we as believers, we receive the, the Comforter. We receive the Holy Spirit at the moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We have that assurance given to us. But not only that, we have this assurance that Jesus Christ is with us. And if I can just phrase it this way, he is with us and for us and not against us. Throughout the book of Hebrews, as we study through that and we see the priesthood of Jesus Christ, it's only by that priesthood that we can come boldly into the presence of God where we may, see, may receive mercy in time of trouble. That Jesus Christ is there with us. Israel has forgotten 
to trust the Lord. And sometimes it's really easy for us to be consumed by the things that surround us, the things that we see and that we taste and that we touch and that we feel, and we have this burden and we begin to trust in ourselves and our own ability or whatever circumstance or thing might displace the Lord in that context. And the reminder for you and I as believers would be to trust Now, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about this morning in regard to, because if God is going to deal with us the same as he would deal with his people, because we are his people, the church, there is some return that we can expect on the return, on the turning back of our hearts. Now, I don't say it that way because it isn't a, a motivation, as it were, right? The, what we're going to get out of the deal isn't why we turn back to Christ, isn't why we serve him, isn't why isn't why Israel would serve him, isn't why Hosea would articulate repentance on behalf of the nation. No, the love of God is what motivates us. Our reciprocation of love towards him, as we would read in, in uh, Romans chapter 12, that we're going to lay down our lives because as a living sacrifice because it's the least that we can do. It is the appropriate laying down of our lives and so what we re reap as a result of that are let's read verses 4 through 8. And as we read this, I want you to notice God's affirmative statements. He says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely for my anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread, and his beauty shall be as the olive tree, and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree from me is thy fruit found. So notice, God is going to, I will. God says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. My anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel, that which nourishes and brings about, uh, about the watering of those things. What is necessary, God is providing again for them. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. You consider lilies, right? They Lilies are a bulb. They look dead. You put them in the ground. They spring up and they blossom. He's, he's talking about the roots of Lebanon all throughout the Old Testament. We find Lebanon being the source of the cedars and the firs that God used, uh, that, that Solomon used to build the temple. It's a wooded region, and it's an area known for those things. Their roots are going to be those things that go down and are, are substantive. They that dwell under his shadow, he's going to restore to them the witness that they was given. Those that dwell under his shadow, this is speaking of Israel, those that dwell under the shadow or in the presence of Israel are going to see again his beauty, 
as the olive tree and, and his smell as Lebanon. In other words, you and I, we may have wasted time. We may have done things that have confused our witness, yet God will restore that witness. And he says, Ephraim shall say, in some respects, the worst of those who are in Israel will say, will have the witness, the testimony of, what have I any more to do with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. That God is faithful. That God has provided everything necessary. I want to look at two verses here as we sort of introduce this as, as conclusion to the book. Because I think that as we sit under conviction, as we hear the Spirit whispering to us and tapping us on the shoulder through the last several months as, our, as we've studied through Hosea. We need to realize the faithfulness of God because that's where he leaves his people. And that's where we want to leave ourselves this morning. And a full understanding of God's mercy and love and compassion of his ability to redeem those things that we may have faltered in. Turn with me to Hebrews 13 for just a moment. As we lay a foundation for our understanding going forward. Hebrews 13. Verses 5 and 6. He says, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. And this is the why. This is why we can be content. This is why we can trust. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Because God has declared that I will be faithful, that you can trust in me. Therefore, we can trust him. So that we may boldly say, verse 6, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Not only that, in Joshua 1.9, as Joshua is about to lead the nation of Israel. Oh, I should be able to quote this. This is a memory verse at one point, right? Joshua 1.9. God tells his people, have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Now, I want to highlight this whithersoever thou goest. There's a couple of things to understand. Number one, like David would say, as we read in the Psalms, if I make my bed in the depths of the sea, there he is. There's nowhere There's nowhere that I can hide from him. And the book of Hebrews would say uh, in chapter four that you and I, before God, are naked with him that we have to do business with. Right? There's nothing that's surprising him. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what's in here. He knows how we're living. He knows everything. And he says, I am with you whether, whithersoever you go. Wherever you go, I am with you. Whether we're over here blowing it, God is with us. He hasn't forsaken us. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Whether we're over here serving him, God says, I am with you whithersoever thou goest. I want to talk about redemption for just a moment because it sets up our understanding even, even more. He tells the nation of Israel, do you notice there, he says, I will heal their backsliding. 
Now, the word backsliding, that means apostasy. That means everything that they would mix in and all the rejection that they have had of God, all their bad witness, all of that stuff, that it encapsulates everything. It says, I will heal it. And the, and the term heal there means that he will completely right the condition. There's nothing left unchecked. Everything is done. It's fixed. It's whole. It's complete. Now turn from Hosea 14, just a, a few pages over to Joel chapter 2. Because as we stand here this morning, we look back and we remember the convictions that the Lord may have sown in our hearts and minds as we look at the things that, that we have done and all those things that where I look back, I'm like, boy, I really, really blew it. I want you to hear what God tells the nation of Israel through the prophet Joel in chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verse 23 through 27. He begins, he says, Be glad, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the, the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. In other words, God's going to provide all of those things. He hasn't rejected them. He's still providing what is necessary when it is necessary. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. There's an abundance of provision. There's an abundance of favor, as it were, that God is going to show his people. Now, here's the thing. I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army, which I sent unto you. So here's God. He says, listen, I sent this army. There were these things that were taking and eating your crops. For years, you've lost that. You haven't had it. They were correcting. He, he clearly says, I sent it. That was my army amongst you. Now, he says, I'm going to restore them. I'm going to restore the years that were lost, that the locust eaten, that the cankerworm, that the caterpillar, the palmer worm, all of those things that would, that would take all of that in the past. He says, I'm going to restore it. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. That has dealt wondrously with you. My people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. And I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. So here we stand and we've encountered conviction. We've heard the word of God. It's shined into our lives. Into our lives and we, we begin to wonder, is there any way that I can take the mess that I've made, that God can use the mess that I've made and do something with it? And the answer is clearly yes. That he's in the business of redemption, not only you, but in the business of redeeming even our faults and our failures for his glory and for his purpose. And those things where we've stepped in and we've made a real mess, God says, listen, I will restore even that, even the mistakes that we've made. Why? Because I love you. And because I'm zealous about the witness that you hold with the world around you. It isn't the result of our merit. It's not because we're somehow good or special or righteous. It's because of who God is. It is his character to redeem. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he tells the nation of Israel, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. He says, I didn't choose you because you were a great nation. He says, no, you were a small nation. I chose you because I loved you. Now listen, God didn't choose you and he didn't choose me because we were a great nation. I'm not a rocket scientist. I haven't provided any means of, you know, like 
life-changing ramifications for the world around me. I didn't cure polio or yeah, nothing like that. He didn't choose me for who I am. He chose me and he chose you because he loves us. Just like he chose Israel because he loved them. We don't merit favor with God, but we were yet sinners. He loved us enough that he would send Christ. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Because we understand that God is in the business of redeeming things, because he's in the business of doing those things that, with our mess, that we could never do. That he corrects the witness, that he takes those things that are our failures and turns them into successes, giving beauty for ashes and hope for tears. Second Corinthians, excuse me, Second Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 8 through 10. Be, there, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Right? He chose us because of his purpose and his grace. Ephesians 2.10 2, 2, would tell you and I that God has a purpose for which we have been saved and called to. That he established before the world began, before we even trusted him, that we would walk in it. And he's going to, re he's going to redeem even our message. He's going to give redemption over those things that we have stepped in. Now, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians, 2 Timothy chapter 1, for which cause, Paul's talking about the cause of why he's suffering, because he's pointed a preacher to the, to the Gentiles, that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And this is true of you and I, and I want you to hear this. I know, we know who we believe. We believed in the same God that promised from the very beginning that he would redeem mankind, that he would bless all nations through the descendants of Abraham, that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, as John the Baptist would say in John 1, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, in that promised Messiah, in that deliverer, would, as we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, be without condemnation. We know who we have believed in as a result of that. And we are persuaded that he is also, that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Everything that we commit to Jesus Christ is kept, that it is preserved. We can safely trust in what he's done. We can safely trust in all that he's promised, that he's granted when he calls us to be his witnesses, when he calls us to do the things that he has called us to do, those paths that he has organized for us to walk in so that we might be a witness to the world around us. We can trust him. As we read in Hebrews chapter 12, 
because we have this great cloud of witnesses, because we see his faithfulness over and over and over described and exemplified for us in the Old Testament. Let us lay aside the sin that so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And it goes on and it continues to say, listen, don't be weary. And it's in that very passage where it says that, that we don't let our hands hang low, that we don't woe is me. But as we look unto Jesus, we have this joy and this encouragement, this extension of his grace, that we might stand up straight, that we might proclaim with confidence and joy all that he's done and his faithfulness, that we might praise him with thanksgiving as part of the witness that we have to the world around us. Throughout this description of the things that Israel will reap as they turn back to the Lord, is this idea of a closer relationship with him, of this growing in relationship with him. They've turned their back on him. God has never stepped away from them. And the same is true for you and I. Well, while we may turn our back on him, he's never left us. He's right there. And when we turn around, I'm convinced that if there was a literal metaphor, at the moment that we turned around, we would be face to face with the Lord. Because whithersoever I go, there he is. He loves us enough to stay with us. This closer relationship with the Lord, though, is going to require of them a return to his word. Right? We have this idea that we and Israel have the same problem that Adam and Eve had, where we don't trust the word of God. That he hasn't, in fact, told us, this is truth, this is how I want you to live. We don't understand it in, potentially in the way that it says to let every man be a liar, but the word of God is true. Rough paraphrase from the book of Romans. It requires a return to his word. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> Now here, Paul is exhorting this young pastor, Timothy, uh, and he's giving him some advice. And, and it's really well-timed advice for you and I as believers, because the same advice would be pertinent for us. He says, beginning in verse 13, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Timothy, until I get there, these are the things I want you to focus on. Right? Read the word of God, exhort people in the word of God, and teach them the word of God. Give them doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Now, this is specific to Timothy. It's talking about him being called to that pastorate. But I think by way of application, we can take Ephesians 2.10 and let that bear here. That here it is, God specifically calling us to whatever purposes they are. We understand that we are equipped through our study and our encounter with the Word of God. Neglect not that gift. Verse 15, meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them. 
that they profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Timothy, the word of God is the foundation you need to stand upon. That is how God has conveyed his purpose, his will, and his truth to us. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life and my life isn't to reveal new truth, but to bring us to a proper understanding of the truth that God has already instilled. And we know that from Jesus himself. In John chapter 16, as he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer, he says he's going to reprove us of truth. He's going to remind you all those things that I have said unto you. He's going to teach you the word of God, in other words. It's not some new revelatory process. Here it is. We stand on the word of God. We trust it for what it says. That this is If God says it, that's good enough for me. If, if God says it, then it can't be wrong for us to engage in it. If God says don't, then it must be wrong for us to engage in it. And it doesn't matter how I feel about it. It doesn't matter what the world says about it. It doesn't matter what anything says about it. This is what God says. Just like Joshua and Caleb, God said it's a land flowing with milk and honey. He said he gave it to us. We should go in. When we walk in obedience to the word of God, it is that simple. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. Right? We have this struggle with our sinfulness. Romans chapter 7 talks all about that. We're going to have ups and we're going to have downs. We're going to have success and failure in our walk with the Lord. But it is that simple. This is what God says. That's what I'm going to do. So for you and I as believers, it becomes incumbent upon us to do uh, to, to study the word of God so that we might rightly divide it, right? which is an exhortation that we find in Scripture. That we would be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, which demands of you and I that we understand what God has said so that we might answer accordingly, in consistence with what he has revealed, with his truth. That I wouldn't impose upon it my own understanding or culture, or values, or whatever it is, but that it would inform those things within me. The result of this engagement of the Word of God, we can read about it in Psalm chapter 1. I want to turn there. I want to, because we have the same illustrations being given to us, this description of being hey, this cedar in Lebanon, the, this olive tree that has branches that spread everywhere. This is the same description that we read about in Psalm chapter 1, Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners. But his delight, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, excuse me, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Now, up to this point in Scripture, I just want you to understand that the law, that's God's word. That's what is meant here. So for you and I who are, who are believers in Christ, and we have the fulfillment, the completion of God's word and its conclusion there in the book of Revelation. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. This is it. We can read this. His delight is in the word of God. And in the word of God does he meditate day and night. And he, this is the result. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in season. At the due time, at the appropriate time. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Sounds like Israel that is growing, that is rooted like the cedars and the firs of Lebanon, that his branches are spreading as the olive trees there in Lebanon, that, that all of those things are happening, that that is the result. 
The godly are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The concluding words here in the last verse of this chapter, the last verse of this book of Hosea. Who is wise? And he shall understand these things. Prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them. But the transgressors shall fall therein. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the opportunity to be in your word. We praise you for the opportunity to have the word of God come to bear upon our lives as we see the example of your people. Lord, and I pray that as we as we leave here this morning, having studied through the book of Hosea, having seen your faithfulness reconfirmed over and over, Lord, that we would understand completely and fully that you are able to redeem all the messes that we've made. And not only, Lord, redeem them, but restore those things that we have fallen into, the mistakes that we've made, those things that have happened in the past, Lord. And we pray for your grace that we might serve you acceptably. Lord, that our witness in word and in deed would be consistent to the world around us. Lord, help us to know you more and more as we engage with your word. Help us, Lord, to come to your word with open hearts and minds, ready to receive the instruction that it has for us and not impose our understanding or will upon it. We thank you for your spirit, Lord, that leads us in truth, that convicts us, that reproves us of truth and righteousness and of judgment. Lord, I pray that we would be submitted to the calling and purpose that you've put upon each one of us. Not for what we might get out of it, Lord, but for your glory, for your honor for the witness of those that may see it and come to know Jesus Christ. Lord, as we have opportunity to sing and praise you this morning, to ascribe adoration and praise to you for who you are and what you've done, Lord, I pray that you would receive it as we've even read this morning, the offering of our lips. We give you thanks and we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.